Uber. Hmm. Oh, hi, Ernie. Hey, Bert, what are you doing? Hmm. Just, uh, just thinking. Oh. What are you thinking about, Bert? Oh, my, my favorite number. Oh, <sighs> really? Yeah. Gee, oh, that sounds, uh, boring, Bert. Oh, not my number. Oh, oh, I guess not. No. Uh, no, certainly not. Mm -hmm. Not your number, Bert. Bert? Huh? Uh, what's your favorite number? I thought you'd never ask. Six. Six? My favorite number is six. Bert, nobody's favorite number is six. Sometimes I spend the whole afternoon sitting around and singing a tune about six. Six. Sometimes I think of six bricks. Bert, that's very boring. Or else I think of six sticks. Oh, that's even more boring. Not five bricks or sticks, but six. Now two is your eyes and one's your nose And five is your fingers or your toes And four is the legs on an easy chair Yet there's no number can compare with six How about nine or three? Nothing more lovely than six I don't know, Bert When someone says, hey, Bert, pick a number Well, I always pick the one nobody picks My favorite number is six you know, I hate to break this to you, Bert, but six isn't anybody's favorite number. That's my favorite number, Ernie. I mean, six just sort of sits there between five and seven. You know, you have five fingers on your hand, and there are seven days in a week, but there's not really six of anything. I know, Ernie, I know. Now two is your eyes, and one's your nose, and five is your fingers or your toes, and four is the legs on an easy chair, yet there's no number can compare with six. All right, Bert. Nothing more lovely than six. Have it your way. When someone says, hey, Bert, pick a number, well, I always pick the one nobody picks. My favorite number is six. I'm only here so I don't get fined for another episode of the Owls AmeriCast Sheffield Wednesday Opinion with an American accent. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and this week I decided to go with, I believe it was Dale DeGroff, the father of the American cocktail, that called this the greatest invention in American history, or the greatest contribution of America to civil society, something like that. But whatever he said about it, it is two parts Sazerac rye, one part Noily Platt sweet vermouth couple dashes of bitters, a mist of herb saint, because I don't actually have absinthe in the house, but make it an all-American product, although I think Noily Pratt is French, but whatever. It is a Manhattan, the greatest of all American cocktails. Like most American cocktails, it has a uh, sort of an apocryphal history. There's lots of stories, there's myths, there's legends, uh, but the sort of Abner Doubleday invented baseball story of it is that it originated in the Manhattan Club in New York, where it was invented for a banquet hosted by Jenny Jerome, 
Lady Randolph Churchill, the mother of Winston. We're crossing both uh, both continents. In honor of presidential candidate Samuel J. Tilden, who was a candidate for the presidency in 1876, a very noteworthy presidential election where the Electoral College could not come to a decision because of close voting counts, and it was the 19th century, and eventually turning the presidential decision over to both houses of Congress, which led to Rutherford B. Hayes becoming American president and the end of Reconstruction as part of the compromise. There's absolutely no greater metaphor. I'm just regaling you with the history of the Manhattan. Also on the line today in New Jersey, it's Patty A. Jones. Patty, what are you drinking? Amazingly, I'm drinking Manhattan too, but probably not the uh, the Jeff classic. Um, I've just got some bullet rye. I got some, uh, I can't remember what the vermouth I've been using, but some vermouth, uh, some bitters and simple syrup. Is that, that, that right? So interestingly enough, like normally... I would not use simple syrup in a Manhattan because I find it too sweet. But if you look at uh, older recipes from like the 1890s, which I think is the first time it sort of appeared in print as a recipe, uh, you will find they use gom syrup, which is a, which is essentially a simple syrup with like an emulsifier just to give it a little more texture. So you can put simple syrup in a Manhattan. That's quite classic. Good stuff. I think that's what I was doing wrong the first time I went to Manhattan's. I was find it too bitter so i've put a bit of simple syrup and it tastes much better how much bitters do you put into it three drops yeah that's fine i like mine a little more bitter but again like anything else uh your cocktail should be made to your taste and i find myself getting more sort of rigorous with traditional measurements so uh, originally the manhattan is a two to one cocktail although nowadays uh it's five to two but originally it was a two to one cocktail and I'm getting a little loose, and I'm being, I'm being more clear on proportions and actual drink sizes, partially because my... Look, you don't want to wake up at 4 a.m. to change a small infant after filling an entire martini glass full of whiskey and sweet vermouth. This is not something you want to do. What we do want to do, however, because we have a jam-packed show full of news and lovely small... British soccer clubs in his closet in Queens. We have to bring on James Allen. James, what are you drinking? Hey, Jeff. You know, I think as a committed craft beer drinker, I've never felt quite so inadequate as to follow two guys talking at length about the historic significance of their fucking cocktails. Um, I'm just drinking beer. Beer. It's uh, it's an IPA. Mm. Um, however, it is an IPA I've talked about on the show before, and it is appropriate. So it does link a little bit to our theme this week, if, or at least to our circumstances, if not to our theme. It's uh, it's from Rockaway. It's from around the corner from me. It is people power. Basically, make your vote count. Count every vote. Let's see where we get to. Um, yeah, and it doesn't have any historical significance. It's just a nice beer. In the cradle of... The American Revolution. Well, slightly south and on a nice uh, archipelago. It's Justin Starger. Justin, what are you drinking? Yeah, we've been here since the 1620s, bud. <laughs> Keep it real. Uh, I'm drinking Cape Cod Brewing Company, Cape Cod Beers uh, Porter. It's quite good. Mm. I am also uh, have already mixed in and will later mix in some uh, Hornitos Black Barrel on Yeho, which I mm. found a liquor store that serves a 750 for under $30. So like, I'm not going back there when I can. 
So good to be yeah, here, guys. Uh, good to see you. I was fairly happy I found the uh, Espelon in Aho for like 32 bucks recently. So it's good. And it's like, with those, it's like, well, I was drinking it straight. I, I actually made a margarita with this for fun to see what it tasted like. Because they finish it in, they finish it in, uh, I think it's like spent bourbon barrels and then a new American oak. Like a very complicated finishing process. But it just had a kind of like barrel note to it in the back. And just pretty much sips like a good reposado but it's still like 20 bucks cheaper than a really good reposado so it's fine i'm not trying to be a hero here i don't i, I can uh you know if i want to go for the Herodura extra in Aho every once in a while like once a year and pay 70 bucks for a shot of that i'll do it but i get 32 bottles 32 dollars for a bottle of this lasts a little bit longer gets the job done hmm you know who else got the job done this week? Uh, uh, <laughs> Sheffield Wednesday's lawyers, and we won't get to that <laughs> later in the Let's show. Let's all raise a glass to Nick DeMarco, shall we? <laughs> Nick, DeMarco. Nick DeMarco, come on Cheers. the podcast once this all comes out. I was joking uh, with a friend of mine who's an Everton fan. I said, the new Wednesday song is going to be E-I-E-I-E-I-O. Up the football league we go. When we get promotion, this is what we'll sing. We are Wednesday. We are Wednesday. DeMarco is our king. <laughs> <laughs> but before we should that, trot him out when we get some fans on the stadium we should trot yeah, him out as a mascot lap of honor yeah yeah because there probably won't be a lap of honor for the actual players because we have to review the Rotherham and Wickham game we'll get to the Burnmouth game which I think will also be divisive among the four of us we will go over the independent panel decision reducing Wednesday's point seduction from 12 to 6 and as Gary Monk had hoped Getting Wednesday out of negative numbers before the international break. <laughs> Talk about Defon Chanziri's statement to the press this morning, and we will preview the Millwall game. And look, folks. Thank God we have so much to talk about. There's yeah, so, else like, like look, we're already five minutes in. I've given you a great history of American cocktails. Jeff, I'm we're not, ten minutes in. We're ten minutes in? <laughs> I'm not even looking at the clock. I'm not doing 90 minutes in 90 seconds on the Burnmouth or in the Rotherman-Wickham game. I'm not doing the Burmouth game either. I have nothing to say about these. We watch them. Some of us watch more of them than others. Uh, I feel like I'm the smartest of the panel because I think I watched 15 minutes total of the Rotherman. I didn't watch all of the Burnmouth game. I don't know why. I needed something to do on Tuesday afternoon, probably. But uh, <laughs> we will start with our talking points from Rotherman-Wickham. Patty, you have uh, just kamikaze defending and no plan. Yeah, uh, this is, again, we're doing like a combined thing. So obviously Kamikaze defending um, can pretty much bullet point most of our games this season. Uh, but certainly since we've lost um, the the bulk of our defenders. So um, <clears throat> Rotherham, obviously just an absolute implosion. Uh, it was a horror show, right? It was like, what, a few days before Halloween and we've, Probably not do any uh, Halloween puns last week, uh, but it was very hard to resist that from the, the two games we had to review from Wednesday last week and Saturday. Um, just when you've got such an awful like defensive uh, injury record at the moment in defence, and you go down one nil in the first what eight minutes was it, and then Aiden Flint goes off, and then. <laughs> <laughs> And then fucking Cameron Dawson goes off, just not off, off, just goes off on a fucking mental streak. Uh, I, I put, after like 
doing pretty extensive notes in the Rotherham game for the first 30 minutes, I just put implosion and then I can't find words to express the next two goals because it was some of the worst goalkeeping uh, I've ever seen. Uh, and it's that bad that uh, both Jeff and James have left the Zoom call while I've been talking about this last two minutes. They can't even face me to uh, <laughs> to revisit it. Um, I just, yeah, Cameron Dawson at fault for losing a man and a goal. Um, I thought yeah. uh, he's at fault for pretty much all three goals. Uh, he got lobbed from six yards out uh, by a header uh, on his line, which is very difficult to do. Um, and was rightly dropped for the Wickham game. Um, so, a second half, I had one highlight for the second half. I'd like to talk about this. I was going to talk about this for most of this podcast, actually. Um, but then <laughs> the game, and then we had six points uh, ruled off. So, I'll get a brief kind of bullet point to my kind of summary from the last two games. The Elevate halftime video um, it was the highlight of my week up until yesterday. Uh, because um, there's a very lovely lady on the Elevate uh, adverts that's running up the hills. I assume it's in like... Oh, yes. Oh, Patty, I step out for two seconds to let the dog out and you just go off about the... I've been trying to get like an actual non-30 or in deference to Justin now, 40-year-old white man on this show to talk about Wednesday for years as a co-host. And as soon as I like step out, you have to talk about it. I think that was simply Patty's like biting line that... That literally the, the the football was so atrocious that that's that's what you had to kind of settle on. I watched the elevate video uh, on repeat for most of that second half of the Rotherham game. <laughs> and I'll tell you something: I was more entertained, even though I watched it at least a hundred thousand times, than I was for the first four to five minutes. So um, I recommend it. Um, I suppose I did do like it was like a 90, 90 minutes in ninety seconds version of the elevate. <laughs> <laughs> well, this lady. And she's doing a bit of running. Uh, some reason she's wearing hot pants. <laughs> Where's she running, Paddy? She's running uphill, really, 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 really hard. Do we know? Bigger, do we, do we still know what the actual Elevate product is? Supposed to be like an energy drink, right? Hot pants and sports yes. is what I found for that advert for um for, for the large woman. Um, yes, uh, <sighs> that's that's my review of the Rotherham game. <laughs> More, yeah, I. I'm, I'm with you on that. I had a similar thing. The back line was atrocious to begin with. The injuries didn't help. They looked slow. Uh, Burner, uh, whoever Tom Lees had to haul down, uh, Burner lost pretty – or no, the first goal, Burner lost somebody pretty bad. It's just – they looked awful. Dawson's been droppable for oh, a long time, unfortunately. I've, I've been a bit of a Wild Smith guy. And I don't have really good reason to argue that. I just have always slightly preferred him. Uh, maybe it's a distribution because especially that Rotherham game, they were trying to use uh, Dawson as the pressure release. And it was awful. It was awful. Everything would go back to him and he was just booting it out of play or just punting it up to Rotherham. That was, uh, th- those two performances were, were so bad. <laughs> and, and yes, we're super injured and, you know, Yes, uh, you know, we just didn't play well. We didn't get bounces and all that. But oh, it just that, that's some of the worst football I've ever seen Wednesday play against really not good teams. Uh, there was no organization. There was no effort. And, you know, as I sort of said offline, it, it got to the point where I think the four of us are fairly rational as fans. None of us are in the sort of 
you know, hashtag, you know, sell the club, you asshole type of people. But I think all four of us were sort of expressing the if change doesn't happen, we're, we're going down the, the yeah. way that we came out of those two games. If change doesn't happen, we're done. And I don't want to call for Monk's head, but it, what you, you're not going to change anything else. Like something drastic had to happen. So let me uh, let I mean, me something pick up drastic on one. did happen in the courts. But. Well, we'll get to that. We, we're we're going to get to that, but let me let me just pick up on one remarkably positive outtake from the Rotherham game. And Justin, you kind of hinted to it, which is it forced a reckoning in the goalkeeping situation. Now, I don't necessarily believe that either Joe Wildsmith or Cameron Dawson are necessarily the best goalkeeper that we could have in this division right now, but they are the two that are competing for the number one spot, and. For two seasons, we've had a problem where Cameron Dawson is a good shot stopper. He is not a good, <laughs> he is absolutely not a good distributor of the shot that he's stopping because he has this tendency to palm it. He doesn't like to hold the ball, he pushes it away. And for whatever reason, he doesn't push it away off the pitch, he pushes it back into the penalty box. And teams have got wise to it, right? Brentford talked about it. They said that that's what they were targeting. And yeah. that's how Rotherham scored twice. And sooner or later, the club have finally cottoned on to the fact that's a liability in this division. You know, if you can't hold on to the ball as a goalkeeper, you've got a problem. And then you add to it the debacle that led to the penalty where Tom Lee's got set off, for which he was almost completely culpable for rushing out the area. It forced a decision for Gary Monk. It put Joe Wildsmith back in the net um, against Wickham. And, you know, I don't want to kind of way down on one player but that I think is important in terms of just a little bit wrong reliability in the back line yeah I like I said I, I've kind of been a slight Wildsmith fan without the stats don't necessarily bear it out I think they have different strengths um, I mean they were good Dawson Dawson just hasn't been confident and like we, we've all seen this for five six seven games uh, Dawson is and we saw it last year he started the year really well he was confident. Things were going well. When he gets unconfident, James, you're absolutely right. It's it's not just the shot stopping, which that blocking the ball back into the crowd is bad. But when you see those crosses come in, I, I need my goalkeeper to make a decision. You've got to, when that ball comes off that player's foot as a goalkeeper, you need to see it, read it, and make a decision. And with Cameron Dawson, you never knew. Was he going to come out? Was he going to stay back? Was he seeing that right? What was happening? And that's a guy without confidence. When, go- when your keeper has no confidence, sit him down, especially when you have somebody who, at worst case, is a little, you know, they're basically equivalent. You're, you're not really gaining or losing too much. I think Wildsmith is a is a better distributor. I think he marshals the back line. He's more confident in the box. I don't think his shot stopping's uh, quite as good. But it's... It's a tough situation, like, and as you pointed out, like, the back four has been, or back five, back three, whatever you want to call it, has been fairly makeshift for the first ten games of the season or so. You need a strong voice back there between the sticks, and they have to know, like, if he's coming, we're going to know he's coming out, and if he's not coming out, we know he's not coming out. He's staying home. And it always feels like I mean, Wednesday have been trash on set pieces for like three years running now, but and I don't want to put that all on the feet of any any one player, any one keeper. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always preferred Joe Wildsmith. He hasn't been as 
good coming uh, back from his most recent like long-term injury. I think as he was before when I think he was like pressing Westwood a little bit, you know, like three-ish, I don't know, three, yeah, three-ish years ago now. But I think he, I think he has to be the number one choice keeper because, yeah, you know, he's not an elite shot stopper in the way that I think elite's not good. He's like an average shot stopper. Like he'll have a mare every once in a while, but again, distributing blame between the goalkeeper and the back line of Wednesday has been (laughs) a fool's errand for the last few years. I just, uh, I just like, I feel like they got right against Burnmouth to a certain extent, but I don't know how much that was sort of like a, a healthy Iorfa being back in there. I actually, uh, and I know, Jeff, my talking point was uh, that I had written was the idea that even though coming out of these two games, even though I didn't blame Monk, I still was understanding about the fact that he needed to go or something drastic needed to happen. Which I mean, again, the ultimate problem there is, like, who's coming into this club right now to replace him? Well, well, of course, and that, that's a totally separate issue, but one of the things I think you can blame Monk for is that he was he's been too slow to pull Cameron Dawson. I mean, I, I was trying to remember if we talked about it last week or two weeks ago, but we, we've all seen this coming. And and thank you guys for repeatedly saying we're not just blaming one person. I, I don't want to put this on Cameron Dawson. The, the defense has been shit. The midfield, and we're back to that donut shape in the middle that just isn't working with Bannon slapping everything long and, and nobody connecting the lines, which we'll talk about in the Bournemouth game. But at the same time, that's got to be on Monk. He, he had to make that switch sooner than he did, and it may have cost us. Yeah, I think the problem is that intellectually, the idea of like, oh, Joe Wildsmith and Cameron Dawson, two young, talented keepers pushing each other in training. Yeah, like that's fine, but it's the old Bill Parcell story. If you have, if you have uh, two starting quarterbacks, you have no starting quarterback. Like, I think you actually need to have a proven championship keeper as the number one. And then you can, or or alternatively, you have to back one of Dawson or Wildsmith with a, you know, a veteran, like a, a Richard O'Donnell type or something like that. And you can, you can do that either way. But when you have this sort of like timeshare, I don't know if it actually helps. Like, you need... I say what you about Kieran Westwood. Kieran Westwood is never going to play another game in a Wednesday shirt for a myriad of reasons that we've covered in this podcast and for other reasons we're aware of that we probably can't cover in this podcast. But he was a prototypical top-level championship keeper and knew how to marshal that back line, was an excellent shot stopper. Yeah, his distribution wasn't great, but... He's a he is a keeper that you can get promoted with. I don't know that Wildsmith and Dawson, and again they're very young. Keepers tend to peak late, so I don't know how we ended up in like a long. Try not to sky. There's yeah, can I bring this to games. Go ahead, James. Yes, right. They're both good goalkeepers, but they're not great goalkeepers. And to mm-hmm. be perfectly honest, we're arguing over something which isn't going to get us promoted. Right. You know, if you want to get promoted out of this division, you either need a backup goalkeeper from a Premier League team who's a hot prospect, or you need a seasoned championship slash Premier League level goalkeeper. Now, we have one of those, but he ain't going to play for us again. So these two guys need to up their game or go off somewhere else. End of. Yeah, there you go. Now we move on to the Burnmouth game. (sighs) 
It's it's like like say what you about the championship, but Wednesday losing three consecutive games to they lost the first Luton Town, Rotherham and Wickham, and then beating Burnmouth, who were undefeated coming into the game at Hillsborough, no less. <laughs> what else can you say about the championship? Can we do a little like a dip in the oil at the end of the Wickham game? Who was Monk out? Because I was, I am Monk out still. Um, were we all Monk out? I w- so, I don't like to put it in those terms per se, but Jeff, get I, off the fence. I don't. I don't think you could argue with them going at that point. Like you, at that point, you know, before they got the six points back, you're looking at the. Situation. I was his doing. I know. Fair enough. Quite the opposite. <laughs> it's, all about, it's all about position in the table, right? Like, make the mark over boss. I I hate to even bring up this team on the show, but do we think like Chris Wilder is a radically worse manager than he was last year? But the results um, are the results. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, the results I are the results. I hope they fucking fire him. That would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I definitely want them to fire him. It's like, we, we so mean, Andrew, I, Jeff, mm-hmm. are you monk in or monk out? I'm going to hold you to this. Come on, give me an answer. Awesome. I am monk in because I don't think they're getting a better firefighter in for the, cl- the squad they have right now. Justin, what are you in? You can give us if, 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 if I if I was Dayfon Chancery, I you're not. You're just in Desaga. Tell us what you think. Uh, I think that I think that Gary Monk can keep us up, and that's all I give a shit about. But if he had been fired at halftime of the fucking Wickham game, I would have understood. I totally would have understood. I would have been on board with it. But I I. I think he's good enough to keep us up. I think the team we have is good enough to keep us up. I don't fucking understand why we do what we did against Wickham and then do what we did against Bournemouth. So I've been I arguing for a while that we, well, we set up better. We, I've been saying yeah, this all year. I, we set up better against those teams, but I don't understand the effort was so different. We'll talk about that. Patty, did you want to jump in? Two, uh, two votes for Monk in. Uh, James? I'm Dayfon Chansiri out. Does that <laughs> That's, no. a choice. that's even worse than the second half of the show. So we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it, seriously, and and it's for the, it's a very simple reason, which is I for the runner results and the performances. Of course, you should be monk out, but you can't get somebody of the caliber we need into this club right now because of the mess we're in. So okay, so similar answer to Jeff. I I, I was less uh, diplomatic and more. Uh, led with my heart as soon as that Wickham um go into now as monk out. Um I don't think have... he's getting it. Let's let's say Wednesday say reasonably safe this year. Finish nineteenth. Get a clean transfer window. I like I don't know if Gary Monk is the manager to get them promoted. I suspect because of his tactical inflex- inflexibility this year specifically from what I've seen. So that's what I kinda want to talk about. And this actually encompasses oh, all three games. Opening a can of worms, man. <laughs> when the center back injuries and, and backline injuries in general started piling up and you had a bad result against Luton, going into the Rotherman Wickham games, it's like this is like the this is like the Lee Bullen thing. So every time a Wednesday manager has been fired for the last like five years of this show. You know, Lee Bullen comes in, 
plays 4-4-2, and they get results for a few games. Because you can do that. And it's not just Lebo and Wednesday. You see this all over football, really. Wednesday had a better... Had, is a more talented team than Rotherman Wickham. If they really just set up in 4-4-2, like a 4-4-2 diamond, and all these guys know how to play in that, because that's like the basis of English football for the last, you know, from, I don't know, 1960-something to 1990-something, you can probably get a result, because just the, the talent will win out. You can put you know, Harris and Reach in positions they're more comfortable in. You know, you know, Penny knows how to play left back, et cetera, et cetera. But he's just decided that it's a it's a three five two or a five three two with the you know a, a more compressed midfield three. And it was very clear that Wickham and Rotherham came in with a plan and were just better organized and like knew how to defend that. And yes, a lot of other things happened. There was a sending off and the effort wasn't there compared to the compared to the Burnmouth game, but I think, you know, Burnmouth played in the exact way if you go back earlier in the season. They were sloppy playing out from the back, which is something that when Wednesday puts in a shift and puts in a more of a high press, they can create opportunities. Um, and like, as has also been the case with Wednesday, even early in the season, they didn't convert on them in the first half and needed a penalty to win because they haven't scored an open play in a month. But, you know, in, in a season where they're going to be playing pretty much midweek and weekend every week, you're going to run into a team like that that's just a little gassed or has a bad performance or a little sloppy in possession. And yeah, you can steal it. You know, is that sustainable? You know, keep them up this year, but I don't know if there's a if there's a wider plan here. Can we just address the elephant in the room? Mm -hmm. You just alluded to it, Jeff. We haven't scored from open play in a month. We've lost three, four atrocious games, bookended by two games that we won by scoring a penalty. So, what's the real problem here? Sheffield Wednesday cannot create goal scoring chances or score fucking goals yeah. that's the problem we 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 do we are capable of creating the chances not all the time we are mm. capable of it. we do not score goals we don't have anybody that finishes so you can chance. give up a you can give up a goal to wickham but you score three or you can give up three goals to <laughs> yes. Robin, you score four for goodness sake preach preach so what you're saying is we need uh james some rock and roll football <laughs> what we need is we need a team that can connect and play at speed. And here's my theory about Gary Monk. Very simple. I think Gary Monk has an 11 that can do that. But they're never fit at the same time. And that's why we were getting enthusiastic at the beginning of the season, because yeah. we were seeing the link play, we were seeing the chance creation, we were seeing goals scored. As soon as a single player is out of that order, as soon as Izzy Brown is injured, <laughs> that, that sinkhole opens up at Middlewood Road, and all of a sudden the entire team is apart. So Gary Monk is always at least two players short of an yeah. eleven that's going to score a bloody goal. And th this is why I'm so on the fence about the Monk out thing. Is that I, I had the impression that Gary Monk could do this job. I understood what was held against him last year, which was a disaster and, and you know, it, it, it goes against him, but if he had his own backroom staff and he had his ability to put together a team, I felt and still feel Gary Monk could do the job that we were asking of him this year. But you're right, James. It's, I, I think it might be 12, not 11, but you're a hundred percent right. And it's as soon as, as soon as something goes wrong, it was 
we lost a fucking Luton, Rotherham, and Wickham. In we could play with fashion. 12 on the field, and they still wouldn't score. <laughs> so as long as we're still playing the tactics we're playing, right? That's what the problem is, right? So the tactics we have over, uh, when we don't have Izzy Brown or Luongo on the field is to get it wide and put a cross in. That's the only tactic we have and the only plan we have. And we've got nobody on the end of those crosses that are making the runs or is strong enough and teams have enough. figured that out. Like teams know how to defend crosses from the wide areas. Like it's not like any championship team worth their salt, even Wickham, can just put two bodies on Kadeem Harris or Adam Reach, making that sort of overlapping run and force them to, you know. Look, if if your goal scoring opportunity is to put a cross into Jack Marriott, you've got a problem. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to make a point about this. Two weeks ago, we were praising this transfer window. Patty and I no, fairly heavily on this podcast. And I, no, 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 James, James, <laughs> one second. <laughs> Callum Patterson is a regular in the Scotland squad. He doesn't actually play as a striker all the time, but he's international. Jack Marriott yeah. is a double digit goal scorer in this league. Yep. We have fucking Jordan Rhodes can't get into the game right now and it has it's banged in like 30 goals in a season at this level six years ago maybe well you're fine but i'm just <laughs> saying that like but all no, these good players the, the come here respond to shitty crosses in the box if we have that full yeah, right, lineup sure, izzy brown is sliding balls through to marriott marriott is getting the same look that windass did he's either scoring or getting tripped up right we have we have no depth and we have these quality players, but again, lumping it into them, these we don't have the guys to do that with. Well, look at who's, look who's, look who's replacing Izzy Brown and Luongo, right? Joey so Pelopassi, the last three, three games. Comes in. Uh, if, so if Izzy Brown's injured, we're not even replacing him. We, we kind of even... No one's so, filling that hole. That's when the donut appears. When this brand's is gone, the, oh, donut appears. we got to talk about Bournemouth because they did a nice job filling that hole in Bournemouth. But if mm. we want to finish... But here is the point, and it's the link to Bournemouth, right? If you have Massimo Luongo playing in defensive midfield, breaking up the play, rapidly moving it forward to Izzy Brown, who can slide a pass through to a fast-moving Jack Marriott, absolutely you've got threat. And that's a good transfer window if all of those players are fit. If not, what you have is Barry Bannon playing in front of the centre-backs, creating the donut, and then you get the Hail Mary, and the Hail Mary was Bournemouth. Because Look where Bannon is when he plays that ball through for Windus to win the penalty, right? He's practically sitting on top of left back. And it's an absolute killer ball that plays him in. But you don't get many of those in the championship. You might get right? one a game. You get one a game, and it so happened that that worked. But that isn't the way to win games with multiple goal-scoring opportunities. What Bournemouth didn't do as well. So uh, Bournemouth uh, weren't... So what Jeff said earlier on about putting players on our wing-backs and our wingers to stop them from putting the ball in, they didn't do that very well. They didn't do much very well at Bournemouth. Uh, we got lots of crosses in, and by hook, hook, or crook, we actually made some quite successful ones too. Number of chances... Uh, but we still weren't playing to our strikers' strengths, and we could do that a lot better. Like six that. corners in the first half, but you know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, and I said that the game. I think Bannon actually won his better games for us. Bannon did a really good job against Bournemouth. Um, but yeah, it's it's still similar. That donut still appeared in Bournemouth. It was just that they didn't do very well at, at like affecting our wing backs or our playmakers. I didn't think Bournemouth, Bournemouth offered anything at all, really, for like 
most of the game. He had like a 10-minute spell in the second half, uh, and that was it. Um, so, yeah, I think it was more down to um, Bournemouth's terribleness that we won like the game rather than our exceptionalism. I agree. I'll, 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 I'll counter a little bit, and then, Jeff, you can counter me. Uh, <laughs> so their coach, uh, Tindall, he was assistant for Eddie Howe for a while, I think. Yeah. A- after the game, he uh, made some comments, the fact that one team showed up and worked hard and the other one didn't. And and I think that's where you're kind of right, Patty, where Bournemouth just didn't seem to be putting the requisite effort in to, to close stuff down and, and to you know really make it work. They got some scary players up front and they just didn't one or two instances, but we were able to shut them down. That said, I thought that we actually did a nice job of closing the donut during that game uh, where Adam Reach started kind of in that sitting behind the front two, roughly the highest attacking central midfielder. And he was coming back and Bannon was sliding up a little bit. And Pelopesi was the one really staying back. And, And I thought the two of them were able to connect those lines. They were able to take it from the midfield and move it to the front. And then whether it was Bannon or reach that would put it out wide. Um, I thought they did a really nice job with it. And they ended up switching in the second half where Kachunga ended up sliding in and being the high uh, midfielder while reach went out to the left side for a little while. Um, And I don't think Kachunga did quite as good of a job, but I I thought we were much better at controlling the middle of the pitch than we had been against these absolute shit teams. And, and Patty, you may absolutely be right that it was Bournemouth no-showing and, and just not being willing to do what they needed to do to beat a pretty mediocre team who hadn't won in that building for 251 games. Uh, but Days, uh, not games. Yeah, it felt, it felt <laughs> like the latter, man. It just it was too much. But I, I actually thought they did a, a much better job than the previous games of connecting the lines. And I think that's one of the reasons they were able to keep pressure on Bournemouth. All right. I don't have really have a rebuttal, but I do need another Manhattan. So we're going to take a break, come back. We'll cover the Wednesday news for the week. Now we're back with some Wednesday news. Yeah, normally it's the first week in November. Maybe we talk about October player of the month, give you an injury update. And there's some rumors about a Brighton keeper possibly coming in. But uh, no, no, instead, uh, I believe uh, James, I feel like is the Wednesday historian in this respect. Uh, James, have Wednesday ever gotten nine points within uh, 24 hours before? Uh, Wednesday have got nine points like within 1870s, a week. Maybe they played three games in one day. I don't know. I, I think if you ever look for a three-game span over seven days, you'd be struggling to find Wednesday getting nine points. Um, not recently, no, mm. Jeff. Uh, this was a, a remarkable turn of events. I mean, obviously, you know, given current uh, current circumstances, leveraging the courts to your advantage is uh, is a no-no unless you're a Sheffield Wednesday fan. Yeah. I. Uh... Yeah, I was just thinking about it, and it's like, I know I don't know if Patty tweeted this out or if Chris did. That we weren't going to podcast until there was good news. Because <laughs> I'll tell you what, we were planned to podcast Sunday night to like give you a Burnmouth preview, but yeah, we didn't end up doing that because literally after the Wickham game, I think most of us all just wanted to 
crawl in a hole and drink whiskey or local IPAs in James's case. But yeah, so at Wednesday appealed the 12 point deduction from the EFL and uh, got it halved to six points. They're now, they're now in positive numbers, one point from safety. That you is the thing the, that happened. Uh, did you enjoy the two hours where we were actually off the bottom of the table? Too? I did, yeah, the two hours, yeah. <laughs> Everyone looked at the league table, see which we updated first. They were like, oh, we're well, off the bottom. Oh, we're not. Honestly, I was getting a little bit of vertigo. Like, it's like heady time, so I'm more comfortable here. But on, the reason why we weren't um, off the bottom for long was that Wickham won again, right? So yeah. it wasn't a fluke against us. Um, mm. They beat, uh, was it Derby? They beat Derby? Yeah, again, again. Not yeah, that's yet too. Darby yeah. are like one point ahead of us now. I mean, Darby are having an absolutely <laughs> atrocious season, to say the least. Let's be honest. You know, Wednesday now within a point of Derby, and um, you know we got dock points and they didn't. So you know, <laughs> karma. Yeah. So let's, let's let's talk about our season chances now. Does that change your expectations for our, for the season? We said at the beginning of the season we'll take a relegation scrap and survive it. Are you now well, aiming higher? So so let's no. take a really simple <laughs> no. analysis, right? Let's say that we hadn't been utterly dog shit for the last three games and lost to Luton, Rotherham, and fucking Wood. We'd be in the same spot. Win two out of three. Yeah. Well, let's just say for the sake of argument, we won those three games. Mm -hmm. With the points reduction... Yes, we'd be 11th. Precisely. In play for the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'm getting at is, like, if you go back before those games, we were talking about the fact that, you know, this is a team that's playing with better shape, and, you know, kind of we've got some good players in during the window, and we're a little bit more optimistic, mm -hmm. and... James, maybe it's been you nine games, you're describing a third of our season where we looked like shit. <laughs> maybe if you take a big step back, we're kind of a mid-table side that's in a false Again. position. I think that's what we were hoping for yeah, we out of this that. year. Yeah, yeah, we all said that. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Team, that's great. Yeah. There you go. So in other words, Jeff, no, it doesn't change the optimism <laughs> yeah. of the season. It makes it less likely we'll fuck it up, but still entirely possible we'll fuck it up. I think it's less likely we get relegated now. Sure. Um, and it makes that... I mean, it was looking particularly scary after the Wickham game that we were relegation fodder. Um, this lifeline's been thrown at us at our lowest ebb. Literally, I said it was the, the worst run of games I can remember after the Wickham game. The worst performances of three games, uh, four games that I can remember. So, literally, at our lowest ebb, since the last lowest ebb, um, and we had this six-point lifeline. It's it's an absolutely amazing result, and credit to uh, Nick DeMarco QC, who has uh, got us these Can six points. we get points. a stand named after him at Hillsborough? <laughs> <laughs> Was he offering like a 10-figure sponsorship deal until the fans got Mardi? <laughs> Is that him? <laughs> I think you must have known about our fans before that. Yeah. Nick, if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can contact us at owlsamericas at gmail.com. We'll take nine figures, uh, just to be clear. I think nine uh, six, uh, six points in the win against Bournemouth felt very uh, connected to me. Like, Patty, you were just sort of mentioning, like, this blessing of, of the six points coming up. But even the win against Bournemouth and for them to show what they are capable of on occasion um, altogether just felt like uh, 24 hours of... Not quite, but almost making up for the absolute dribble we were watching before then. You know, you know what, always... Justin, I think it's, it's it's like balance, isn't it? Like, if you go back before this god-awful run, go back to the Brentford game. Like, we weren't bad against Brentford. We, we didn't defend well against Brentford, but we 
we probably could have got a draw out of that game and Brentford are a decent side, right? So you kind of, you take the averages and you say, well, here's a team that aren't dreadful, but they're not great. They can't score many goals. And then we went on one of our catastrophic kind of, you know, disaster plunges against the uh, the aforementioned trio. If you take away the points deduction, we're probably <laughs> we're probably going to end up exactly where we deserve to be, which is not anywhere at all. But that's that's just who Sheffield Wednesday are right now. Um, what's great about yeah. this, and let's just kind of take it for what it is, 12 points as a deduction for what we basically self-inflicted on ourselves was probably fair. But thanks to some good legal representation, we've got it reduced to something which is, you know, appropriate. So that's that's the hand we're dealt with this year. It's all about survival, or it was to begin with. Now we get the excitement of possibly getting between mid-table and the playoffs. So woo. Can we put whoever was in charge of the of hiring the lawyers in charge of our transfer policy as well? <laughs> Literally the best money Chancery spent, probably. <laughs> in six years here. So, speaking of Defan Chansiri, uh, he did give a press conference this morning. And the usual stuff back the manager, back the squad, talked about the reduction in points deduction, but did give a, I'm sure, a quote that will not be seen on Wednesday Twitter for the foreseeable future. The club is not as big as it thinks it is. I mean, you own the club, so like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, I have no problem with the statement. Um, He's not wrong. Is the thing, <laughs> like... <laughs> and he's he's always directing his his um, negativity towards a minority of fans. I find, and if yeah. you put in the context of this conversation, he talks about the fans and the minority of fans who are negative always. Uh, on social media that may have cost some money, may have been <laughs> may, 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 may. He, he claims this happened. Uh, but um, I feel like uh, he doesn't really get fan culture, right? He's, he's, he needs to have a thicker skin. We said this before. Uh, he always seems, he always says that criticism needs to be constructive. That's no, no football fans given constructive advice. <laughs> it's like, say what you will about Mike Ashley. I use Mike Ashley as an example. I don't feel like you know Newcastle fans don't like Mike Ashley. He's teased them with sales now, like every transfer window for the last ten years. It feels like as an excuse not to invest in the club. But like Mike Ashley, Mike Ashley is living his best life. He's throwing up in fireplaces. Like it's fine. You know, you just have to have that attitude. I think the problem for Chancery, like you think about that first year, where like you know he's. Smoking cigarettes with fans walking up to Hillsborough and but those like, you get that like it's like it's like an endorphin thing. Like you get that rush as an owner of a team, everyone's behind you. Like imagine owning Sheffield Wednesday for that promotion push season. Because when the club oh, is actually wrong. good, it's it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. As soon as it goes a little bit bad. A little bit bad. It turns sour quickly. Yeah, and his comment on the fact that we're not as big as we think we are is, is completely right because we um, we're not anymore. Yeah. That was 20, 20 years ago when we mm-hmm. were decent. Um, 
and the fans still expect Premier League quality football, and it's been a long time since that happened. So I think that's it's a reality check that a lot of fans might need to do themselves. Most fans will say, "Yeah, we're not. It's ridiculous. This massive thing's ridiculous." Um, so, I mean, I have no problem with that. Um, Sunderland's things... in League One. Like I don't <laughs> yeah. tell you. And to be honest, I, I all I've read is the transcript of this interview. I haven't mm. seen um, how he became off in a kind of an emotional sense or kind of way phrases stuff. So I am literally going by the text, um, and there's not a lot to argue with him on. If I'm honest with you, is is very matter of fact. You've got to appreciate the fact that he's done a three-hour press conference first of all, and basically nothing was off the table. Um, some of my favorite things he said was about Steve Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he says he didn't want him to come. Uh, he told Steve Bruce he didn't like his style and that he couldn't finish his job. He said he wasn't good enough. This is what, in his words, obviously. Then he said, uh, <laughs> basically, he, he said that he only got the job because of Wednesday, he, he, the job he did here. So it was very uh, much the fact that um, he did not like Steve Bruce. So uh, that was, I thought, was interesting and good. And I think that probably um, makes him appeal more to the fans in that respect yeah i mean it's it's a complicated relationship between the sheffield wednesday fans and Dave chancery i feel like it's been a consistent theme over the last you know five or six years at this point i and it could be worse i guess <laughs> it can always <laughs> be worse <laughs> i mean he he puts his money into the club maybe and sure. he'll let James, take this away in a sec. I, I do just want to say about the the big club thing. I He's totally within his rights to say that, and he's not wrong. It's been 21 years since we've been in the Premier League. And, you know, to be honest, what, probably 40% of that, 30% of that was in fucking League One or bumbling around the middle of the championship, and it, it hasn't been great. That said, I do want to state unequivocally, this is a goddamn massive football club, all right? <laughs> And and we are fuck fuck everybody else if it, we belong in the Premier League and that's what that is and I hope that he's the guy to do it. So James, got- do you think do you think he's the guy to uh, get us where we rightfully belong as the biggest club in Yorkshire <laughs> and without a doubt one of the twenty biggest clubs in England? No. <laughs> so I'll come. No, I'll come, no, no. I'll come let's let's, no. let's, yeah. let's deal with a home, few home truths, right? Yeah. Simple home truths from this morning. Um, most Sheffield Wednesday fans, I don't know if it's most, but a lot of Sheffield Wednesday fans weren't alive when we were last in the Premier League, right? The age I was when I was watching Sheffield Wednesday in the 90s, a Sheffield Wednesday fan of that same age today has only seen a crucible of shit since. So the idea that we think we're a big club, I mean, goodness me, it's for the, it's for the history books. Let's call it what it is. Second, Dayfon Chancery is the difference between Sheffield Wednesday being in existence and not being in existence. If he closes his checkbook, if he stops funding the club, we are Bolton. So we owe him a debt of gratitude, whether we like him or whether we like his style or not. And that's really, really important. Third, his heart isn't really, truly in this. You don't give a press conference like he just did, berating the last manager, berating the fans, you know, basically giving this kind of diatribe of how it is, unless you're a bit frustrated, right? You know, he's put a lot of money into this club. 
this project hasn't worked out for him. He doesn't understand the fan base. He doesn't truly understand football. He definitely doesn't understand South Yorkshire. He doesn't understand the culture and the community of Sheffield Wednesday, right? So where are we? We're between a rock and a hard place. We've got someone who, out of good intent and deep pockets, is keeping this club alive, but does not have the conviction and the vision and the ability to mobilise and organise to get this club into the Premier League. That's where it is. And so we're in this kind of chasm of um, of our own perpetuity, right? We've, we've positioned ourselves to this because we look for a saviour. And what we haven't done is we haven't built the organisation to get us out of it. I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna give him a little bit of credit <clears throat> uh, because I do think uh, he has got. I, I think he is in it for the long run. I think he is in it um, because he wants this club to do well. I don't think it's a financial investment. I don't think it's he's in it to make money. <clears throat> do I think he's still a little bit naive? He doesn't need people on the ground to run the club. Definitely, but uh, you've got to admire that he's in it still and he said he'd be in it for life one of the like answers he says is like he'd do this for life if if he, if he could um but he's also said that if, my, if fans want him out then the, he's welcome to listen to the offers <laughs> knowing full well that no one in uh no one in sheffield is going to be able to buy that out uh, <clears throat> i don't understand i don't understand the he didn't give a reason for why he doesn't want a ceo or a sporting director he just said that's not his policy that's not the way he wants to do it he leaves the transfers down to managers saying now that, that was something he said today too. Um, <clears throat> uh, the one thing I want to bring up as well that he um, that he did say, which was that was a little bit, um, it, it was not known news uh, until today. A lot of stuff was very much repeated on what we can do already. He did say that he regrets not selling Fernando Forestieri when he could have sold him. Uh, but he said that obviously when uh, the offers were in, he was one of our best players and uh, he wanted to make sure that we get our best players. So again, he was honest about that, but he said in hindsight, he should have sold him at the time because, and this is a quote, he did nothing <laughs> since then. Uh, so. that's, but Paddy, that's naivety, right? And I mean that in the most genu- generous terms. It, it is somebody saying, yeah, I got it wrong because I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, you know? And he, he had good intent. I don't dispute that, but I just remember this walking... football club just need just needs better. It, it I don't mind if Dave Fontanciri wants to be a silent owner of Sheffield Wednesday. If he's in it for the long haul, put some people in who can run the club day to day. I can work with that. But don't hold us hostage. Don't be the guy who says, because it's my money, it's my decision, and I'm gonna learn as we go, because we're learning as we go and we're learning it's fucking painful. I just remember walking from Football Factory to Naima after the second leg of the Brighton playoff. And I was very drunk. Uh, I I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure after the Ross Wallace cross that went in to make it 1-1, when I was running around that like, I, I don't think it was on purpose. I'm pretty sure Damien punched me in the face and like broke my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> So he just had like his hands up like this as I was running around. So I just like ran into his fist. But we were walking over to Naima and I don't know who I was in this conversation with. It might have been Brendan. It might have been Patty. It might have been James. Any number of kooky characters that have been on this show over the years. But like, like, 
we get promoted who's the, who's like the first name like who's going up who's the first name on the team sheet bannon is it forestieri is it pudiel like who like who is it and like those are real memories those are things that happened like the championship is a weird ass league they can stay up this year do nothing and just like randomly finish in the top you know finish fifth next year and get promoted it's possible I just, it's such a weird world right now that I don't know what it's going to look like in six months, 12 months, 24 months. Probably still be in the, the fucking the, championship. The world is weird, Jeff, but again, look, I'm, I'm trying to straight talk on this one. Yeah. The clue is in what he said about Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce wounded him. I don't blame him for having a go back at Steve Bruce for the way he exited to Newcastle. Yeah, and you have to understand but, but, but what... But don't, don't, don't give me this line that he never wanted him in the first place. You Steve have to Bruce understand what the role of football is. Like, that's just... It's it's mercenary. It's mercenary. You know, like, Carvalho... Yeah, you know, Carvalho's playing in the Europa League today. You know, Braga against Leicester. He had good results, you know, last year. He's bounced around since he left Wednesday. That's... That's an... It's short-termism. And, you know, Carver Hall was the right manager with the right squad at the right time. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure you're hearing what I'm saying, which is to have a go at Steve Bruce about before he came in, mm. that's not good judgment. Steve Bruce was a good hire. Steve Bruce yeah. did good things for Sheffield Wednesday, and he turned us into a competitive force in the championship. He was the guy who could have taken us so, from 23rd to 5th in the season. Right. So how much of that, though, is the idea that, like, he and I appreciate this to a certain extent. And again, this gets into the sort of the mercenarial versus, you know, what do you want your community club to be? He went after Steve Bruce, who was at the time he was going after Steve Bruce, a high level championship hire. It was a statement of intent. And Steve Bruce said he wanted to do certain things because his parents had just died. He wanted to go to the cricket and whatever else. And 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 Carver Hall said, uh, sorry, and Chan Siri said, fine. And you know, like he takes it too personally. He takes all of this too personally, which is both a problem and also something that I think Wednesday fans should appreciate because we also take all of this too personally. You can go back and listen to the podcast we did after Steve Bruce left Sheffield Wednesday to Newcastle. And I think at least three of the four of us were on the show at the time. <laughs> and we, especially Patty, said some things. You know about C. Bruce, and like that's okay. I stand by yes. every word. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, I, I I gather your point, James. Is that like you have to look at this as an investment, and he made a certain amount of he he paid a certain amount of money to Milan Mandarich to buy Sheffield Wednesday, with the impression that there would be a financial payoff, and in, in terms of promotion of the Premier League and the TV contracts that come with that and everything else, and that has not happened. And he's continued to put, you know, you know, bad money after good, if you want to phrase it in that way. So I'm, I, I'm sympathetic in that respect, but also, yeah, you know, if, so the Dodgers just won the World Series. <laughs> the Dodgers are owned by a large investment conglomerate, the Guggenheim Group, um, and have generally stayed out of the way of their you know, their front office and the, the soccer equivalent with the director of football. And they said, here's your budget. And but like, look, at the end of the day, if you put the right people in place and 
you get promoted to the Premier League with this club that has not been in the Premier League for 20 years and, and feels it's it's the divine right of kings here that they should be in the Premier League. And all you do is get handed the first place championship trophy at the end of the season and no other involvement. Man, you'll be a legend for fucking ever. And like he has to understand that and, you know, be Brentford or be Leeds or, oh, fuck, I can't believe I just fucking said that on a show. Oh, I feel like, go ahead, Patty. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> so I, I, I thought you were going down the route and this might be where your train of thought was taking you. When you got about the, the uh, analogy around uh, walking back from Football Factory to the next bar with the, the New York Owls. And you were talking about like the players you'd have in your first team. I thought you were getting to the point um, around the emotion it carries about a good player and what those players become if they take you to the next level, right? And the argument around Forestieri at the time, um, from Charon Sirius' point of view, was he was our best player. We had good offers, but I turned them down because I wanted to keep him. And I, th- I think that... Uh, if I'm trying to finish your own thoughts here, is, is that we would have probably thought the same too as fans if we had sold Forestieri at the time that we had the offers for him. And we would have probably felt betrayed. Um, so he took that gamble, said, fuck FFP, we'll, we'll not cash in on it, and we'll keep him because he's our best player. And then in his own words, he did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't so, know that he was wrong. They were one offside trap away from being in the playoff again the playoff final again against reading so no i don't think it's wrong either yeah. and, but it, it, that's what you said Sal. look it was in hindsight it was the wrong decision but yeah. we didn't have hindsight at the time we, yeah. we kept our best player <laughs> um so i don't think you can blame him for that i think you can blame him for other players we should have sold on at certain points but um yeah certainly we can't so yeah I'm, all i'm saying is that on balance of this interview today he said some things that i don't agree with the fact that he won't employ a CEO yet, uh, I think he's very salty in certain uh, areas, which uh, some fans will get along with, some fans won't. Um, and intrinsic characteristic been... of South Yorkshire men that I've met. <laughs> yeah. um, it's interesting. Some some of the the reaction on Twitter has been quite divisive. I would say, I think a lot of fans um, really kind of get along with the uh, salty chancery. And a lot of fans take umbrage to it. Um, James is putting his hand up, so I want to see what side of the fence he falls on. <laughs> I think we already know. <laughs> well, so here's the thing, right? It depends on what you want him to be. If you want him to be a talisman, if you want him to be just like the face of Sheffield Wednesday, he can be salty as he likes. He can appeal to like the kind of the warrior rhetoric of South Yorkshire or whatever. That's fine. But if you want him to be the decision maker, if you want him to be the leader, if you want him to be the organizer of Sheffield Wednesday, you need a whole lot more. And the problem is he wants to be all of the above. And so my simple analysis is this. I don't trust his judgment. I don't trust that when it comes to the big decisions that he makes the decisions that are the best for the long term of Sheffield Wednesday and that will deliver Sheffield Wednesday into the place we want it to be. So if he wants to be the CEO and chairman and manager and COO and sporting director, he's not doing his job. On the other hand, if he wants to be the funder of Sheffield Wednesday and say the kind of sentimental or charismatic thing at the right time, he is completely the right guy. So, and so yeah. the difference is the infrastructure behind him. 
So here's the, here's the comp. So I'm uh, I'm in prospect list season right now. Here's the comp. It's like, do you want Kerry Megson or do you want Dave Jones? James is making a face. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like, like Gary Megson. Has, uh, no, but I mean, like, it's it's you know, it's, a, it's a step up. <laughs> but, yeah. Do you mean this chairman, Jeff? Because neither one of them have got the money. <laughs> no. Here, here's James. Here, here's but no, do you want like Gary Megson is like blood and thunder takes the new signings up to the top top level of the cop in Hillsborough and like does that like shit and like that's great and all good, but like he didn't get us promoted. Dave Jones did. And like, yeah, it wasn't the greatest football in the world, but he never lost until he got us promoted and then he lost a whole lot. But, but that's the idea, right? It's like, do you want, do you want the true, like, argues over the exact proper width of the blue and white stripes? Right, so, so, or do you want the way the, we're, we're having yeah. a long and protracted argument yes. here, but Miller Mandrich was the person who decided to switch Gary Mason for Dave Jones. Yes. It was Miller Mandrich whose judgment made that hard decision at the right time to get Sheffield Wednesday promoted. Dave von Chancery didn't sell Fernando Forestieri. Dave von Chancery pissed off Steve Bruce. Dave von Chancery mucked up the sales of, of Hillsborough. Dave von Chancery has funded Sheffield Wednesday but hasn't built Sheffield Wednesday and that's what I'm getting at what I'm really getting at is his heart may be in the right place but his decisions are not in the best interest of Sheffield Wednesday end all right well there's still games to preview so we are heading into the international break but we have a a, a long time favorite of the podcast we have a match against Millwall Justin Justin God bless you. You decided to discover Millwall this week. I love I love the discovering gets me ready for the games. Uh, uh, the basic talking points this week are that uh, this is not your old Millwall that uh, Neil Harris was sort of a big purveyor of that. And uh, who was before him? Guy at Villa now, I think. Uh, just this classic English 4-4-2 and clog it up and score on a late cross and the crowd at the new den will throw garbage at you and beat your supporters up and let's finish, you know, 11th in the table. And, and some of the other uh, championship wide podcasts I enjoyed listening to uh, really talking up Millwall this year. I actually think Jeff, you might've mentioned them as somebody you liked this year. Somebody really talked about, and I thought this is not, it's not a team that ever finishes above eighth or ninth in the the championship. I really going to be relegated so. every year out of spite. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Jeff it, is the one that just never do? realizes it's <laughs> good. Well, yeah, unlike Derby, huh? Yeah. Um, so what, what I really hadn't paid attention to because uh, we've all hated football since about Boxing Day last year, uh, but are the changes that Millwall has has done. Uh, Gary Rowett has come in, and, and I don't think Gary Rowett's a tactical genius by any accounts, but players like playing for him, and he gets the team working hard, and there is some legitimate attacking talent up front. Um, they picked up Mason Bennett, speaking of Derby. They got him from there. Um, and then Jed Wallace, who I heard a lot of people saying was going to go up to the Premier League last year. Ten goals, 13 assists. Um, I think he's probably only you know, maybe 23 or so, a legit talent up front. They got uh, Troy Parrott, uh, who actually hasn't played at all, uh, from Spurs. Uh, Spurs fans are real high on him. And uh, 
they were the team that one of the teams that probably pipped us to uh, Kenneth Sahor and getting a uh, link from him. Um, so Millwall is actually looking like a more enjoyable team to to watch, a team more capable of you know moving the ball around and scoring some goals. So it'd be uh, I think it should be a little more interesting than what we've come to expect as sort of a typical Millwall game. My one uh, my one Millwall story and. At least two of the three people co-hosting the show will be familiar with my uh, Martin Hodge stories from a bar, certain bar in Queens. But when I was originally told the Martin Hodge story for the first time, I was sitting next to a Chelsea fan. I don't remember what fucking game we were watching, but he was telling a story about going to... I think to... James is shutting his head in the door right now. <laughs> so, he the Martin, yeah. so he doesn't know the Martin Hodge story I'm again. not going to tell the Martin Hodge story again. James is a different story. I was sitting next to a Chelsea fan who was telling a story about bringing his like university girlfriend, um, who was a Millwall fan. It's like, oh, Chelsea's playing Millwall in like the cup or something. Let's go. So they decided to go. And I guess as they got up the subway stop in Millwall, this is the old den. It's not the new den. There's just like a car on fire as they got off. <laughs> And he and he's stupid. He's like, yeah, I was wearing my Chelsea shirt, and they just started throwing batteries at me from like windows and shit. I think cars on fire in Millwall is a common occurrence. I definitely yeah. see the car on fire in Millwall before too. I think that happens every week. Just mm. a car on fire place. <laughs> <laughs> was that in your report, Justin? Say again. Was cars on fire in your report? No, no. It was not. <laughs> uh... The fact that they generally play a three-four-three. Can we make this simple though? Like now that Millwall are like a you know, challenging upper half of the table team, that means we're more likely to get a result against them, right? Yeah, it's a little disappointing because like you go to Millwall, you expect certain accoutrements, I guess. That I don't feel like is. Uh, I don't think the fans anymore? have changed though. The, no, the fans ways. have not changed, but <laughs> I feel like like the the playing style has lost a little bit of its charm. Yeah, I, I think it actually could be fairly challenging because they tend to play one up front and he doesn't seem to be the difference maker, but they they play off whoever is up front and they have uh, Wallace and, and Bennett on the sides right now. And I, I think given our back three and, and who knows who's going to show, um, could be could be a little rugged. Uh, a lone guy up front uh, tends to get lost with our... Uh, with our back three. And we've seen that uh, during that stretch of losses. Uh, Tony's obviously a beast, but you know, I'd never even heard of and can't even remember who was up front for Rotherham and we kept losing him. So hopefully we uh, tighten up that back line or, or we're not getting any points this weekend. Do we have any other business? Um, yeah, we've got a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, Meetups are happening again. So New Orleans are going back at FEMA calls. They've got an outdoor screen there. So they're um, social distancing and doing outdoors. We're doing it in New York too. We've got a, a, an outdoor spot we're using temporarily. Uh, well, at least that's the plan. We're going to call Perfect Pint, which is in Times Square. And a few of us are going to meet there. Um, I think that's it, really. Uh, Patty, I have one other piece of other business. Go for it. All Don't right. tell me about so, dispatches. Uh, Apple LFC has a new manager. <laughs> I thought we got the far away with that fucking Apple FC. <laughs> some dispatches from Cypriot Soccer. Mick McCarthy 
is now managing Addie Newhue at Apple LFC. James, I feel like this is a perfect pairing. <laughs> James signed off a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> James is mic drop for the Chan Siri rant. James has uh, James has no comment. So you were listening to episode 112 of the Owls Americast. <laughs> sponsored by... Uh, Patty, did you write this? I mean, obviously you did, because I need to you. Like, I have a... Uh, I don't yeah. think you should say that. You don't think I should say any of that? I was, Great. I was feeling... I was feeling you're, a little, you're, a little, you're a little cranky? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you should read it and then cut it, because yeah. I want to hear it now. You can get in contact with the show at owlsamericas.com. You can email us at owlsamericas at gmail.com. Find and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at owlsamericas. Our podcast intro and bumpers are by fellow Wednesday's Reverend of the Makers. The podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Podbeam, and probably anywhere else you choose to download podcasts. There's no wrong way to listen to the show. Just do what feels right. And wherever you choose to consume the Owls Americast, we ask that you rate and review our show. It helps more Wednesdayites find our ramblings. Justin is on Twitter, at New England Owls. Justin, do you want to victory lap your successful prediction about John Harks last week? I did. I did publicly call the uh, victor of the USL one yeah. playoff game. So yes, you did. I will. Uh, I will absolutely uh, take the victory lap on that. Thank you, Jeff, for bringing that. Hang up. on a minute. They won by default. The, the game. I was asked out of the blue to make a pick on a game with involving two teams I've never seen before, and I correctly called that, Patty. And I appreciate you recognizing that on the. Union Omaha was robbed. COVID robbed them. Yes. <laughs> The owls were robbed. <sighs> James is on Twitter at Manhattan Owl. James, uh, you gonna make a Manhattan after this? You know what, Jeff? I'm uh, I'm completely lacking all of the constituent ingredients that you talked about about two hours ago at the beginning of the show. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna go and order all the ingredients, and then I will make a Manhattan when they finally stop counting the vote in Georgia just to celebrate. Mm, that probably around Saturday or Sunday. Patty is on Twitter at New York Owls and at Patty A. Jones. Ah, Patty. What are you what are you ordering up at the perfect pint this weekend for a Wednesday do, in Millwall clash? They do my favorite locale beers at Perfect Pints. I'll be drinking <laughs> the Lagunitas Daytime and uh the other one, Dogfish. Yeah. Dogfish Head Small and Mighty. There you go. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro, and we'll be back here next week and the week after because I guess we just fucking do shows every international break now.